All right, Charles Wesley. We'll go over his life briefly, but I, I printed out this more full thing I found on the internet by the Christian Bookshop, which I think is a Baptist organization over in um, England. And at the end, it's this guy, Reverend Dr. Alan Clifford, minister of Great Ellingham Baptist Church, Norfolk, England. So credit to him. Um, like I said, I commend to you Arnold Dalimore's book on Charles Wesley. Um, I think that's, that's a really great biography and really sets him up in a context so you see he was more than just a hymn writer. Actually, in his day, he was known as a preacher second only to Whitfield. And some considered him a better preacher than Whitfield. So um, we remember him as a hymn writer, but in his day, that was just part of what he did. Um, but let's, let's talk about um, his... I've got lots of his hymns to look at, so I'll try and go through his, his life quickly. He's born um, in 1707. He actually was born a few weeks premature, and when he was born, he didn't make any sound, didn't cry, didn't open his eyes. They thought he was dead. They wrapped him up and let him lay there and from the accounts, it seems that a couple days later, he kind of stirs. I don't know how to make sense of that, but, um, you know, everybody regarded his birth as miraculous. And um, 18, when he was 18 months old, there was, a, there was a famous fire that burned the rectory. His dad was a minister, and the rectory was burned. Um, John Wesley always regarded himself as a brand plucked from the fire because he was miraculously saved the whole house burned to the ground. Um, he's a few years older than Charles, but Charles was also had to be rescued from that fire at 18 months old. Um, so both of them had a very strong sense that God had saved them for a great work from the beginning. And their parents definitely encouraged that. Um, Susanna Wesley's, you know, very famous for her devotion to her children. Maybe you've heard of her very methodical in the way she would, you know, spend time with each child each day inquiring about their soul. Um, her grandfather, as well as their, their father, Samuel Wesley's grandfathers, were both Puritans um, who had been ejected in the Great Ejection of 1662. So they came from solid Puritan stock, but by the time of, of you know, the Wesley's early childhood, they had both returned to the Church of England, their mother and father, Charles's mother and father, and he was an Anglican pastor. They also seemed to, at least the mother, seemed to not be so excited about the new birth idea um, because when Charles and John write to her and tell her that they've been born again she kind of gets offended because they say they basically say we now we're Christians and she says what do you mean you've all you've always been Christians um, so she's you know a commendable woman in a lot of ways but she seems to resist some of their evangelical fervor and see it a little bit as enthusiasm which was a common charge by Anglicans and, you know, my own experience growing up in an Episcopal church, though this isn't true of all of them, was the idea of a personal relationship with Jesus was looked upon as sub, sort of a suspect idea. Um, and it was in their day and age. I mean, the, the main reason people got upset with them is because they would preach to baptize church members, you must be born again. And that's what got everybody upset. Seems like, you know, it shouldn't be that big a deal, but yeah. it really was. Um, he and his brothers were sent to very excellent private schools. Their father, uh, their father was a poet as well, and an author, as well as being a pastor, and gave them quite a um, good literary education, 
well trained in the classics and Greek and Latin and all those sorts of things. Um, and then they both head off to Oxford. Um, in uh, it, it's in Oxford. The, you may have heard of the Holy Club, which um, begins, and that's when the name Methodist is first given to John and Charles and George Whitfield joins this group. And there's a handful of these guys. It's actually Charles that begins it, um, even before John. And he basically, you know, is really concerned about the state of his soul and sets to try to be very methodical, thus the name Methodist, in things like fasting, caring for the poor, visiting prisoners. Um, sometimes they would do things like to really beat their bodies into submission. They would fast for days on end. Um, Whitfield writes about often sleeping on the cold hard stone floor with no blankets, you know, just trying to you know, basically try to find peace of conscience. It doesn't really happen. Um, this is the point at which John and Charles go to Georgia to be missionaries. I don't know if you knew that. They went to Georgia, to Fort Oglethorpe. Um, and Georgia, yeah, over here in Georgia. Yeah, and this is, you know, 30, 40 years before the American Revolution. It's a pretty rough place. And Georgia is a penal colony at that point. So, Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's a bad place. And John and Charles, neither one are converted at this point, and their experience here is really a disaster. Um, though one of the interesting things is, when they're coming over here on the ship, there's a number of Moravians on the ship with them. Moravians are Germans who, you know, basically like Luther. In Luther, you have a strong concern for doctrine and also for evangelical fervor and spiritual life. But Lutheranism kind of loses that and tends to focus more in the 1600s, 1700s, late 1600s really, on doctrinal correctness and loses some of Luther's concern for evangelical fervor. The pietists, you know, kind of recapture that part of the Lutheran experience and they, um, you know, part of, the, part of them are these Moravians, Count Zinzendorf is their leader, and they begin a really incredible missionary movement. They send missionaries all over the place. So they're on their way to Georgia to be missionaries, the ship is caught in a hurricane off the coast. Um, even the sailors, the you know sea-hardened sailors, think that they're going to die, and they're freaking out and screaming and shrieking. But the Moravians show up 9 a.m. like they always do to sit calmly and sing their German hymns, and with such peace that the Wesleys are just blown away. John actually takes to learning German so that he can converse with them and figure out what is it that causes them, you know, such peace. And he begins to learn a lot of their hymns. He actually publishes the first Methodist hymn book while he's in Georgia, in Savannah, I think is where it is. And um, it includes a number of translations of these Moravian hymns. But neither one of them are converted yet. But they're kind of grasping at that, and, and they're very intrigued by the Moravians talking to them. Eventually, Charles and John both, you know, have a, have a terrible time. John actually there's this, this woman that he seemed to have been interested in but never gets around to proposing to her. Another guy proposes to her and they come to John for him to marry them because he's the pastor of the colony. And he refuses and they sue him for slander and he has to basically leave in the middle of the night, hop on a ship and get back to England. Yeah. Um, then Charles, um, Charles actually goes back first. He has health problems. He's originally a secretary, like a literary secretary to... Um, the governor, I think, of the colony, um, but ends up falling into bad health. He ends up having pleurisy. It's a very serious thing. Uh, my wife was telling me it's this inflammation of the lining of the lungs, 
Um, very, very painful, um, especially when there's not antibiotics to treat it. So he thinks he's gonna die and goes back to England. John shows up in England, he's happy to see him, but neither one of them have had the new birth yet and they're both quite concerned for that. They have some experiences with the Moravians. This guy, Peter Bowler, who's a famous Moravian pastor, comes and visits Charles. Charles thinks he's on his deathbed. And Peter Bowler, I love to tell this story about how Peter Bowler asked Charles um, how it is with his soul and you know, by what hope does he hope to be saved. And Wesley, you know, Charles says, by my good endeavors. And Bowler just shakes his head sadly and walks away. And Wesley later writes in his journal, what, would he rob me of my good endeavors? What else do I have? Um, but they begin, some of these guys, these Methodist guys, start to um, get together with some of the Ravians and they start reading spiritual literature out loud. Um, and that Luther's the guy they're really drawn to. So there's one, um, one time they're in a house and one of the guys is reading Luther's commentary on the Galatians and reading the preface to that. And that's how Charles Wesley gets converted, hearing that. Next day, John is with a group of guys who are reading the preface to Luther's commentary on the Romans, and he talks about how his heart was strangely warmed, and he gets converted. Now, Charles Wesley begins his first hymn the day after his conversion. I think John's converted three days later. So Charles Wesley begins his first hymn the day after his conversion, and I put it down here for you. Um, it's called, Where Shall My Wandering Soul Begin? Um, and it's one of the, it illustrates one of the things that his hymns are filled with. This is on, it's like a little front and back page. Did you take one of these on the hymns of Charles Wesley? This is the little page of examples. Yeah, yep, it's the second one there. Um, and here's the little story that, from Charles Wesley's journal that I put right above it. Um, yeah, Charles, this is on May 21st, 1738. At nine, I began a hymn upon my conversion, but I was persuaded to break off for fear of pride. Mr. Bray, coming, encouraged me to proceed in spite of Satan. I prayed Christ to stand by me and finish the hymn. Upon my afterwards showing it to Mr. Bray, the devil threw in a fiery dart, suggesting that it was wrong and I had displeased God. My heart sunk within me when casting my eye upon a prayer book, it means a book of common prayer, I met with an answer for him. Why boastest thou thyself, thou tyrant, that thou canst do mischief? Upon this, I clearly discerned it was a device of the enemy to keep back glory from God. The next day, his brother John was converted, and Charles wrote in his journal, Towards ten, my brother was brought in triumph by a troop of our friends and declared, I believe. We sang the hymn with great joy and parted with prayer. So his hymns really begin right upon his conversion. He ends up writing 9,000 poems, 6,000 hymns. I once calculated how many days includes the 6,000 hymns. Um, I once calculated it, basically the 6,000 hymns average a hymn a day for all of his converted life. And it's not like he just sat down to write them out, they just just bubbled out of him. Yeah. He's constantly just having them come to him when he's riding on horseback, traveling around, he's you know having to jot down piece, on pieces of paper and sticking them all over himself. Um, or he'll, he'll get to where he's going and he'll jump off his horse and cry, paper and a pen, paper and a pen, and he'll jot down this hymn that he's been writing down. So, you know, pretty remarkable. Here, here's his, his, his first attempt at a hymn. Now what you notice about this, and the, next, the hymn he wrote the next day was in Can It Be? Yeah. And they both are getting at the same issue, and a lot of hymns 
Um, T.S. Eliot said that basically, oh, how's the line I put it on here? Um, yeah, he, he's forever asking the question, and can it be? And he seems to never be satisfied that he's been able to answer it sufficiently. So many of his hymns are trying to answer that question again and again and be able to speak what he feels in his heart. Um, and so um, here's, what, here's what Watson says I think is helpful. This little book, on, which is a great book on literary criticism of hymns called The English Hymn by J.R. Watson. He says this, So every attempt is a new beginning, and every hymn is, in T.S. Eliot's words, a different kind of failure. Yeah. In other words, he never, he never feels that he's managed to capture what he wants to capture, even though a lot of people consider his failures the best hymns in the English language. Yeah. Here, but here's this one. Where shall my wandering soul begin? How shall I to all to heaven aspire? A slave redeemed from death and sin, a brand plucked from eternal fire. There's that reference to he and his brother being yeah. you know, plucked from the, the fire. How shall I equal triumphs raise or sing my great deliverer's praise? Oh, how shall I the goodness tell, Father, which thou to me hast showed, that I, a child of wrath and hell, I should be called a child of God. you also see in this his emphasis on the pronouns of Christian religion. Luther said that there's a whole world of theology in the pronouns. The Wesleys were very much in favor of that idea that it was the pronouns that separated a real Christian from a nominal Christian. It's one thing to say Christ died. It's a whole other thing to say Christ died for me. And his, his hymns are filled with those personal pronouns. Um, should, know, uh, should know, should feel my sins forgiven, blessed with this antipast of heaven. Is that how you say that word? And shall I slight my father's love or basely fear his gifts to own? Unmindful of his favors proved, shall I the hallowed cross to shun? Refuse his righteousness to impart by hiding it within my heart? No. Though the ancient dragon rage and call forth all his host to war, though earth's self-righteous sons engage, them and their God alike I dare. Jesus, the sinner's friend, proclaim, Jesus to sinners, still the same. So he's even there, he's, he's wrestling with, should he proclaim this or not? Yeah. Which even, like he writes in his journal about, you know, wondering whether Satan was stopping him or preventing him from trying to write a hymn or should he press through that um, this is interesting as well the way he often picks up on the social issues of his day and incorporates them into his hymns in this next verse outcasts of men to you I call harlots and publicans and thieves he spreads his arms to embrace you all sinners alone his grace receives no need of him the righteous have he came the lost to seek and save come O my guilty brethren come groaning beneath your load of sin. His bleeding heart shall make you room. His open side shall take you in. He calls you now, invites you home. Come, oh my guilty brethren, come. Um, languished for you, the eternal God, for you, the Prince of Glory died. There's reference to Watts. You can tell he's read Watts' hymns. Um, believe and all your sins forgiven. Only believe and yours is heaven. So he's definitely captured the heart of Luther. You know, that faith is a simple you know, look to the cross and belief. And they're very strong on that. The, you know, even though there are many and um, the Wesleys are very strong on justification by faith alone. As a matter of fact, J.I. Packer has a great little article called Arminianisms with an S where he shows the difference between Jacob Arminius and the Wesleys and how the Wesleys really are evangelical and really do celebrate justification by faith alone. You don't get that in Arminius and a lot of other Arminians, but the Wesleys are closer to reform folks in that regard than a lot of Arminians are. So, um, and then of course you know the next one, and can it be that I should gain? And that was very much, you know, another attempt to try to 
sort of give God praise for this experience that's happened to him. He's very, very, very full of that sort of thing. So, um, where are we at? We're on the life here. I talked about Georgian failure. I talked about the day of deliverance. Um, the great awakening, you know, is, is just beginning. Whitfield actually gets converted a little while before the Wesleys, and he's already beginning to preach while they're over in Georgia. So it's interesting how the Wesleys are often credited with being the beginnings of the Great Awakening. Wesley really is earlier, and in this country, um, it's a guy named Theodore Freelinghausen who's preaching in New Jersey to the Dutch Reformed folks. It's it really the revival begins under him, like in the late 1730s, 1735, somewhere around there. And the Tennant brothers, Gilbert um, Tennant. Uh, is influenced by Freelinghausen. He's a Presbyterian guy, and Tennant's also friends with Edwards. And you know, Whitfield's the guy who goes back and forth. The Wesleys never come over here, but Whitfield comes back and forth to America something like seven times, preaching up and down the coast. He's the most recognizable figure in the you know pre-revolution days, more famous than anybody. Benjamin Franklin, who doesn't believe Wesley's doctrine, publishes his works because he's so popular. He's the first American celebrity who would have been known by by most everybody in the colonies. But he also preaches in Bermuda, he also preaches in Scotland and Ireland and England. And um, so a lot of people know the Wesleys and don't know much about Whitfield. But, you know, one of the things that happens, the, Wet, the Whitfield and then later the Wesleys um, begin to, to preach in other Anglican churches besides their own. But pretty soon people get upset and bar them from preaching in these Anglican churches. And that's when they start preaching outdoors feeling a sense that they're called to preach not just within their parish boundaries, which is very upsetting and gets them in trouble at times. Whitfield's the first one to do this outdoor preaching, and Charles follows um, pretty soon after that, and eventually John does as well. And there's all kinds of just amazing stories about preaching to thousands upon thousands of people. Um, Benjamin Franklin estimated that that George Whitfield could preach to a crowd of 10,000, and people could hear his voice. Interesting thing about Whitfield, he was trained as a stage actor. Um, so he knew how to use his voice to project. And some people also think that he was pretty theatrical in the way he preached. Though my, myself, when I read the Puritan sermons, I find that they use the same kind of vivid imagery that, that Whitfield does. I, I don't know if it's, if it's really accurate to say that that all comes from the stage. Um, I think that's a little overdrawn. But... Um, the uh, you know he writes over a thousand tongues on the one year anniversary of his conversion, and so and he even calls it that you know a hymn to sing, you know on on somebody's on conversion, and it's actually quite a long hymn. The over a thousand that verse is verse seven of the longer hymn that he that he wrote. A lot of his hymns have many more verses than you ever see, and John would take his hymns and edit them down to put them in the Methodist hymn book. They would show up in these little hymn, hymnals with all the verses, but then they would get edited down um, in the Methodist hymn book. Yeah. Um, so like I said, he was really known as a, just an amazing preacher. Particularly, he was, he was known as a very passionate preacher. He was known as a very emotional man. He suffered from bouts of real depression, but he just has... A, just a lot of feeling. He seems to have a very artistic temperament. Um, and a lot of persecution. You know, a lot of, a lot of Methodists, sometimes crowds would show up when the Methodists were gathering and they would 
throw stones at them. They would strip the women naked and drag them through the streets. Some of the Methodist preachers were killed, even by these mobs, and the authorities would, would look the other way and not intervene. Um, you know, Wesley talks a number of times in his journals about being, being stoned and almost dying. Um, there's a famous story about a mob, you know, and they plan to kill him, and there's a man with a sword who was planning to kill him, and he's able to miraculously just kind of walk through the crowd, kind of like that story about Jesus. Um, it's pretty amazing, pretty thrilling to read, you know, Wesley's journals. And Wesley and Whitfield, it's interesting, you know, they write their journals. I, I think of them as like, you know, the first bloggers because they're writing their journals with an eye to publication. They're sort of personal journals, but they're writing them intending to publish them for the public. You know, so, so it's very interesting this sort of, are they private or are they public, you know, literary, you know, documents, and they're kind of a little of both. Um, eventually, you know, one of, the, one of the great things about Charles, he had a wonderful marriage. John had a terrible marriage. And actually, um, his wife kept leaving him um, his wife would stand up in the back of the room when he was preaching and curse him and scream, right? And then she would leave, and after about four or five years, there was a point at which she left, and he wrote in his journal, I did not dismiss her. I will not recall her. <laughs> and he finally quit going after her and bringing her back. But he had a really miserable marriage. Um, but Charles had a wonderful marriage and very moving story about this Welsh girl, Sally, that he married who suffered from smallpox which made her quite disfigured um, and yet his you know letters to her and the way he loved her and cared for her was really moving um, to his friends and to other people it's a story you could look up sometime if you want um, eventually though Charles doesn't seem to have the same constitution as Whitfield and Wesley um, and John Wesley I mean and so eventually he ends up moving to London and quits doing itinerant preaching and he takes over kind of organizing the Methodists in London and lives there and continues to write hymns um, till his death. And when he lay dying, I put this on the very end here, March 1788, um, he's 71 years old at this point, he dictates these lines to his beloved Sally on his deathbed, in age and feebleness extreme, who shall a helpless worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity. Now, what do we say about his hymns? He's probably one of the most skillful and gifted hymn writers as far as technique. Uh, like I said, he wrote 6,000 hymns, and yet they just flow out of him. His gift for rhyme is extraordinary. His use of rhythm is almost always faultless. A lot of hymn writers, you know, suffer from putting the accents on the wrong beats, and you see that when you try to put them to music, that they've not done that very well, but, but he's really, really skilled at that. Rarely, rarely does he force rhymes. His vocabulary is incredible. Um, sometimes, actually, he uses words that are so obscure that hymn editors end up changing some of them because they're words that people don't use anymore. Um, what's, you know, what's also really interesting is the meter that he use, uses. The English psalms, the metrical psalms, use something like 15 different meters, but mostly use common meter and then use a couple, you know, a couple other meters that are variations from that. Isaac Watts uses 19 meters. 
Wesley uses over 100 meters. There's no English poet that writes in as many meters as Charles Wesley. And he's very skillful in all of those. And again, it's not like he's sitting down and just agonizing over these. Um, he just seems to have this skill where he can just do this in just an effortless way. Um, really remarkable. Um, he's also amazing in his ability to use linking words. Look at over a thousand, which I, I put here for you. It's on the back of that anti-Calvinist hymn. Um, you see this in, um, in, in some of these, you know this, this hymn, um, but look like at the end of the stanza one, the triumphs of his grace, and then my gracious master and my God, right? And then you see the honors of thy name, Jesus the name that charms our fears. And it, he seems to do that just by instinct. Um, he doesn't do it all the way through, um, but he uses it so often in here. Um, it's, it's really, really amazing. Um, there's, you know, this amazing, amazing hymn as well. Uh, I think those are the couple of the examples. You know, there's this verse, it's like four up from the bottom, the one that we never sing anymore. <laughs> it's not very politically correct. Um, Awake from guilty nature's sleep, and Christ shall give you light. Cast all your sins into the deep, and wash the Ethiop white. <laughs> now, he's not saying that black people need to become yeah, white yeah. to be Christians. That's based on um, Jeremiah and about how, you know, the, God's the one, you know, that by ourselves to change our heart would be like the leopard changing his spots or the yeah. Ethiopian changing his skin, yeah. you know. But we don't say that, that verse anymore. Um, but it's so fascinating. I mean, harlots and publicans and thieves, and then the next line, murderers and all ye hellish crew. In holy triumph, join. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, that's right. He does that sometimes. He kind of reuses phrases. Um, most hymn writers do that. You'll find certain phrases that they come back to again and again. Um, he's really skillful in the way he uses paradox. Um, I, I mentioned that when we talked last week about, or two weeks ago, about Anne Steele. But um, Wesley uses that really powerfully. If you go back to this hymns of Charles Wesley. You see that in this first hymn, Thou Hidden Source of Calm Repose. Verses 3 and 4 of this one, just listen to this, this paradox. Jesus, my all in all thou art, my rest in toil, my ease in pain, the healing of my broken heart, in war my peace, in loss my gain, my smile beneath the tyrant's frown, in shame my glory and my crown, in want my plentiful supply, in weakness my almighty power, in bonds, my perfect liberty, my light in Satan's darkest hour. In grief, my joy unspeakable, my life in death, my heaven in hell. You know, just, just incredible skill um, at that. Uh, one of my other favorites, uh, I don't know what, what, what hymn this is from. I just found it in one of these books. Um, but these lines, Emptied of His Majesty, this is an incarnation hymn. So it's probably in the hymns for the incarnation, which I have somewhere. Um, Emptied of his majesty, of his dazzling glory shorn, being's source begins to be, and God himself is born. I love that. Being's source begins to be. That's, I mean, that's just an amazing line. You know, one of the things that makes for a great hymn is you get it when, when you first read it, and yet you can just sort of continue to sort of say it over and over, and it, you're, it just sort of 
you know, just c continues to capture you and evoke, you know, strong feelings and deeper amazement at the truth. And he's so good at that kind of thing. Um, what are there? What are aspects here? Where do I find my little paper? Oh yeah, it's here. It's right on the top. You need one of these? Yeah, no, I think we got one. Yeah, she got one. You just missed it. Okay. All right. What else do we see in him? A great urgency in his hymns. This is where I mentioned about it. Can it be? And when shall my wandering soul begin? All these questions, and they're urgent questions. There's real strong feelings in his hymns. Again, Watts is a little more refined and a little more kind of sort of quiet contemplation. There's none of that in Wesley. Wesley is, you know, very zealous, very passionate. You know, he's writing these hymns on the front lines of intense spiritual battle. Um, you know, there's nothing calm or reposed about his life or his hymns, really. Um, he can be quite polemic at times. This I mentioned to you earlier, these anti-Calvinist hymns, which, you know, I guess for benefits of this little podcast, it would be worth looking at, at this one that I mentioned, where it says, on the back of over a thousand. Um, this is from his hymns on God's everlasting love. It's page 15, where he talks about, no decree of his consigned my unborn soul to hell. God was merciful and kind, but I would still rebel. Still self-hardened I remained, would not receive salvation's cup, grieved his spirit and constrained at last to give me up. God forbid that I should dare to charge my death on thee. No, thy truth and mercy tear the horrible decree, all caps, horrible decree. Though the devil's doom I meet, the devil's doctrine I disclaim. Let it sink into the pit of hell from whence it came. I, this record, leave behind, though damned I was forgiven. And that's the question you want to ask him. Damned, you were forgiven. So, if you were forgiven, and then you don't accept Jesus, why would you go to hell? And that's what Augustus Toplady picks up on that and talks about. You know, can Christ demand two payments for my sin? Once from his, once at Christ, and once once at me. Um, because that's, you know, Calvinists are always going to ask that question of Wesley and his doctrine of universal atonement, and yet he still doesn't regard all people as being saved. And Calvinists see a tension in there and a problem in his theology. But, um, you know, this is an interesting thing. We often think that the first people to use choruses and refrains were the Victorians. And like during the time of D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey, um, these Victorian gospel songs like Solid Rock and Fanny Crosby's hymns are the first hymns to use choruses and refrains, but that's not true. Wesley uses them quite a bit. He has a lot of hymns that have choruses, and I, I think I put one of them on here for you. Did I? Got, no. I, did I give you this little copy? Oh, I probably forgot this one. I forgot this one at home. Um, it's called God of My Salvation Here. I think it's 168. I did make a copy of this for you, and then I forgot it. Um, but I'll, I'll read some of it for you. God of my salvation here, and help me to believe. Simply do I now draw near thy blessing to receive. Full of guilt, alas, I am, but to thy wounds for refuge flee. Friend of sinners, spotless lamb, thy blood was shed for me. And he keeps, in all the verses, he keeps coming back to that. Friend of sinners, spotless lamb, thy blood was shed for me. Friend of sinners, spotless lamb, thy blood was shed for me. So that's number 168 in the first edition of the Methodist hymnal. Um, 
So that's interesting. Um, he has a great concern for religion of the heart. He wants to feel the truth. It's one of the things I love about Arise, My Soul Arise, which I think is on the back of this paper. You know this hymn because we sing it in RUF all the time. But um, you may not know that this is a communion hymn. It, it actually doesn't appear in his little volume, Hymns on the Lord's Supper, but nonetheless it is a communion hymn. And what he's crying out for in this hymn is to feel the truth that he sees in the sacraments. And a lot of his hymns are, are really sort of wanting to connect head and heart. And um, I think that's really helpful. Um, what, uh, th this one drops out of the Wesley hymnal a long time ago, but it's still a great hymn. And Charles Wesley actually used to get letters all the time from people who would tell him how their hym his hymns had been used in their conversion. And this guy, Bruce Hindmarsh, who came and spoke here a number of years ago, um, talked about finding this notebook that had never been discovered before in this archive that was all the letters that Wesley had gotten from people that he'd pasted into a notebook. And there were more letters about how God had used Arise My Soul for people's conversion than any other hymn he ever wrote. So, um, anyway, a couple other things. Um, very strong on justification by faith and emphasizing the personal pronouns in Christianity. He died for me. I mentioned that already. He wrote hymns, a lot of hymns, out of particular situations. Particular situations. Um, I'll give you a couple examples of this. This is a kind of a helpful book, though the guy hates Calvinism, called The Gospel and Hymns by Albert Bailey. And um, this is somewhat um, sort of historical reconstruction. Um, but he basically says, you know, kind of says, here's, here's typically how a little Methodist service would go. He calls this an imaginative reconstruction. I think this is helpful. Listen to this. The room is a small school building contributed by the other societies for the poor colliers of the region. The colliers are um, coal miners. The evening is Wednesday, after dark and after supper. Senek, John Senek, who is a Methodist leader, is there first. He lights the candles, builds a fire in the grate. Soon the people arrive. An old lady with a cane, a couple of miners in their heavy boots and rough smocks, the grime not wholly removed from their hands and face. The town simpleton who longs for company. The village drunk, recently snatched from the burning. A carter, a shepherd, a farmer, and a wife. None of them has an education. Most of them cannot read or write. Every last one of them is poor. Some of them desperately poor. They've worked all their lives and have never been farther away from home than Bristol, which is four miles away. Of such is the kingdom of God in Kingswood. Senate greets them as they come in. The Lord bless you, brother. Thank the Lord you could come, sister. How's the sick girl, Mrs. Stowe? How's the lamb that broke her leg, Danny? They nod to one another as they take their seats on the benches, glad to feel the warmth of friendship and a common aspiration. Senek strikes up an old familiar hymn by Charles Wesley, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues. The tune is lively. Senek is a good singer. Everybody joins whether he can sing or not. It makes one feel good to sing after 12 hours in the coal pit. The leader prays extempore, that means without, you know, written words, and calls for another hymn. The ex-drunkard asks for Soldiers of Christ Arise. Most of the people know that one also. The leader then says that Mr. Charles Wesley has written a new hymn, which he desires all the Kingswood class to learn. He wrote it when he heard of the stoning of some of the members of the class last week, and the setting on fire of Mr. Barrow's hayrick by the same ruffians. From his Bible, Senate takes a piece of paper on which are written in Mr. Wesley's own hand the words of, O thou, to whose all-searching sight. It is to be sung in times of trouble and persecution, says Mr. Wesley, and he wrote it especially for us. And he would do that. He would hear about 
a particular group of Methodists being beat up and he would write a hymn and send it to them to sing in their Bible study the next week. Um, and um, here's, you know, stanzas three and six are really interesting. If this, if in this darksome wild I stray, be thou my light, be thou my way. No foes, no violence I fear, no fraud while thou my God art near. If rough and thorny be the way, my strength proportion to my day, till toil and grief and pain shall cease, where all is calm and joy and peace. The other thing that's really interesting about the Methodists is, you know, they're very concerned for the poor. They um, are famous for going into Newgate Prison and getting themselves shackled to the people on death row um, and preaching to them. As a matter of fact, there's a famous um, cartoon of a guy being on his way to, to, um, to the gallows. And in the, in the cartoon is a picture of a Methodist because he's holding a book that says, you know, Wesley's Hymns, preaching in the cart to the, you know, to the guy on his way to the gallows. That was such a common experience that, the, that putting that in a cartoon was just, of course, you know, if a guy's going to the gallows, there's going to be a Methodist preacher accompanying him. Um, this is from um, John Wesley's journal. Yeah, John Wesley's journal. Um, July 12th, preached at Newgate to the condemned felons and visited one of them in his cell, sick of a fever, a poor black that had robbed his master. July 17th, at Newgate, I preached on death, which they must suffer the day after tomorrow. At one o'clock, I was with the black in his cell. Two more of the malefactors came. I had great help and power in prayer. One rose and said he felt his heart all on fire, so as he never found himself before. He was all in a sweat, believed Christ died for him. The black was quite happy. The other criminal was in excellent temper, believing or on the point of it. July 18th, I administered the sacrament to the black and ate more, having first instructed them in the nature of it. At night, I was locked in with Bray in one of the cells. We wrestled in mighty prayer. All the criminals were present and all delightfully cheerful. The soldier in particular found his comfort and joy increasing every moment. July 19th, I rose very heavy to visit them for the last time. At six, I prayed and sang with them all together. All the ten received the sacrament. At half hour past nine, their irons were knocked off and their hands tied. I went in a coach. By half hour past ten, we came to Tyburn, waiting till eleven. Then were brought the children appointed to die. There was no age limit for people to be um, executed in England in the 1700s. There were over a hundred death punishable offenses, as little as stealing a loaf of bread, and children nine, ten years old would often be hung at the gallows for that sort of thing. The Methodists, and then you know later the Clapham sect and Wilberforce, that was one of the things that they really pushed, pressed for was reform of the judicial system and prison reform. Um, you know, anyway, this is interesting. The ordinary, who's the prison chaplain, he says, decided to come up and start to minister to the prisoners. Uh, the prisoners begged that he might not come. They didn't want to have anything to do with the official prison chaplain. And the mob kept him down. I prayed first, then Sparks and Broughton. We had prayed before that our Lord would show there was a power superior to the fear of death. They were all cheerful, full of comfort, peace and triumph. Assuredly persuaded Christ had died for them and waited to receive them into paradise. The black had spied me coming out of the coach and saluted me with his looks. As often as his eyes met mine, he smiled with the most composed, delightful countenance I ever saw. Reed caught hold of my hand in a transport of joy. Newington seemed perfectly pleased. Hudson declared he was never better or more at ease in mind or body. None showed any natural terror of death, nor fear, nor crying or tears. I never saw such calm triumph, such incredible indifference to dying. We sang several hymns, particularly Behold the Savior of Mankind, etc., and the hymn by Watts entitled Faith in Christ 
which concludes a guilty, weak, and helpless worm, into thy hands I fall. Be thou my life, my righteousness, my Jesus, and my all. We prayed him in earnest faith to receive their spirits. I could do nothing but rejoice. Took leave of each of them in particular. Mr. Broughton bade them not be surprised when the cart should draw away. See, because they're, they're all in the cart with the noose around their necks, and then they're going to draw take the cart and pull it out from underneath them. That's what's going to happen. They cheerfully replied they should not be surprised. We left them going to meet their Lord, ready for the bridegroom. When the cart drew off, not one stirred or struggled for life, but meekly gave up their spirits. Exactly at twelve they were turned off. I spoke a few suitable words to the crowd and returned, full of peace and confidence in our friend's happiness. That hour under the gallows was the most blessed hour of my life. There's all kinds of stories like that. You know, I mean, these are... These are hymns born out of the midst of ministry. Um, so when Wesley writes, my chains fell off, my heart was free, that's not just a cool poetic image. I mean, he literally had that experience over and over again of being shackled to prisoners and then having the shackles knocked off of him. Eventually, though, Newgate Prison was closed to them. The prison officials decided that they didn't want the Methodists. When opposition rises to the Methodists, they get blocked from going to Newgate Prison and from going to the um, insane asylum where they often did ministry, which is really sad. Um, and then the last point I made um, is how he sometimes takes phrases from secular sources and uses them in a new context to speak of Christ's love. There's a lot of debate about whether he, they do the same thing with um, secular tunes. Do they take secular tunes? There's debate about whether Luther did that. And you often hear the, the, phrase, the idea that Luther took bar tunes. Um, but it seems that that word bar um, is from the German bar, B-A-R-R-E, which means a, a, tune, a tune with an A-A-B-A form. That's a German bar tune. So whether you know, Luther actually used drinking songs to set his hymns to, we're not sure. Um, there's more people that claim it for the Methodists, though there um, is a guy who's over here at the Board of Discipleship who's written you know, very strongly in opposition to that and says no. There's no evidence for that. They had a very negative view of alcohol. They would never have done that. Um, I remember when Bruce Hindmarsh, who's one of the world's leading authorities on John Newton, came and spoke at our hymn conference a number of years ago, and hearing him dialogue with this Methodist guy about this issue. And he said, there's got to be some basis for the rumor. It doesn't just come out of the blue. We know for sure that the Salvation Army did that. They took secular songs and did that. We also know that William Williams, who wrote Guide Me, O Thou Great Jehovah, He's a Welsh Calvinistic Methodist, so he's living at the same time, friends with Whitfield and in Wales, and he often, his wife had a really wonderful voice, and so often she would, they would go into a pub and she would start singing a familiar song, but with the, tune, the lyrics that he had written his hymns. So I know that he did it, yeah. and people didn't regard it as scandalous. So it's true that some of the Methodists do it, whether it's true that Wesley's, you know, the Wesley's, um, use secular tunes, we're not quite sure, though there seems to be some evidence for that. Thoughts, questions? Commend to you Wesley's hymns. I commend to you um, Googling the um, complete, you know, the poetical works of John and Charles Wesley, yeah. downloading the whole thing. It's like 10 or 12 volumes, and you can download the whole thing for free, for, for free, 3.8 meg. And... Um, it's pretty good because all of these little, I mean, there's probably like 15 or 20 of these little 
hymnal books. Oh, he also, you know, he writes tons of different hymns for particular occasions. Like he puts out, there's a, a famous earthquake that happens, and then everybody begins to think there's going to be an earthquake in, in London, and somebody prophesies about it, and everybody's freaked out. He writes a whole collection of hymns and puts out this collection of hymns on, you know, about the earthquake. Um, wait, I, I think I put that on here. I'll tell you that last little little thing. Where was that? Um, oh, yeah, it's on page 228 here of Watson. Um, these are some of his, his hymnals. It's really fascinating. Um, he has, um, you know, when people are concerned about the Jacobite rebellion in 1745, he publishes hymns for the times of trouble. In 1746, he publishes hymns for the public thanksgiving after the defeat of the rebels at the Battle of Collendon Moor. Hymns occasioned by the earthquake, March 8, 1750, appeared in 1750 and was reissued presumably as a consequence of this huge earthquake that happened in Lisbon, Portugal, uh, in 1756. Near the end of his life, he was concerned about the American Revolution, and the Gordon Riots gave rise to hymns written in the time of the tumults, June 1780. So, you know, lots of, you know, hymns dealing with particular situations. Um, so it's, it's, that's kind of interesting, you know, it's commenting on the times and his hymnody, and, which is bringing together worship and life. So he would not have all been in favor of the idea that the way we should pray at the beginning of worship is, Lord, leave all those distractions at the door. He very much wanted to connect, you know, life and God. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah, I haven't read as nearly as many of Wesley's hymns as I want. Um, I, you know, I've, like I said, I got this volume called Sacred Poetry that you can yeah. Google and find. Kessinger reprints, K-E-S-S-I-N-G-E-R publishing, um, Kessinger.net, you can find it, and that's called Sacred Poetry. That's a good collection to get um, if you want a good, like, starting place. Or if you like to read things on your computer screen, you know, downloading the complete poetic works. Yeah, worth having, you know, so. Do you have a